Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is the question I get 24-7. When do the restaurants open? When do we take the risk? The offices come back. When do we take the risk, given these wonderful statistics of getting ourselves back to some form of normal? Well, thank you, Tom and Lisa, for having me back on the show. Well, the answer is we want to get back to full economic activity in the state of New York as well. And we are the ones that are suffering as well because we're not seeing the revenues come in. We have a dramatic shortfall because of this. But that being said, there is a reason, a very well-thought-out, compelling reason on why we went from having the highest rate of infection in the country to now among the lowest, 24 consecutive days, less than 1% infection rate. So people will say, okay, why aren't we all back to normal? Well, here's what we're facing, and literally this is going on in real time. Schools are starting to open. We'll have students, thousands and thousands of students, leaving the security of their homes and going into places where they're congregating with other students and teachers. We also have colleges returning, thousands of students coming from all over the country. Yes, they're supposed to be quarantined before they come to a New York campus. We don't know if that's happening with assurances, as well as now seeing an increase in infections in places like Europe, which is where it came from in the first place. So we have this perfect storm brewing, and right. if we oh, fair, go fair. back now on what we're talking about, we could end up having to shut okay. down everything that we reopen. Kathy, I, I, I get that idea as we're all waiting for a vaccine as well, but the only alternative then, and Lisa and I observe this in the island of Manhattan, and you're living it in the complaints and the stresses of government, and that is people are flat on their backs. The stimulus that you need from Washington, give us the immediacy of, the, immediacy of that. How critical is that, and what size do you believe you need? Well, the governor just contacted our state representatives in Washington, our federal representatives who represent the state, and said we need $59 billion. We need that right now. And the reason we need that is because we also have to give money to schools so they have the resources to make the environment safer, to give parents some confidence that they'll have enough protections in place before they send their most precious treasure off to school. So we need it for schools. We also need it for first responders, law enforcement, child care, health care. If they don't do this, I'm telling you this is going to be cataclysmic. Our state cannot sustain this loss in revenues without having the federal government do what they're supposed to do. This was not a New York state pandemic. It was a national phenomenon. And this is when you call upon the federal government to help out. And we're not going to stop pounding on that. We're going to continue to say you have a responsibility. It's once every 100 years. Step up and do your job uh, to the president and to the Republicans in the Senate that are trying to punish the blue states. Those are their words, not mine. And it has to stop. Kathy, in the meantime, trash isn't getting picked up as frequently. There are rats all over the place. Crime is ticking up. People are leaving the state. People are leaving New York City. Is it too late? Is the tax base getting destroyed uh, for the future revenues of this region? We're going to be in for some tough 
times, no doubt about it. We are. I'm always going to be very honest. The governor has been very honest in painting the picture of what lies ahead. We are anxious to get the economy going back again, and, and the vast majority of activity is up and running. It's not to the same scale it used to be, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. No one has declared victory over the coronavirus. We're not there yet. And it's gone on longer than anyone wanted or ever hoped to. But our model was what happened in 1918 and 1919. And it wasn't just a one-year phenomenon. It goes till 1919. And if that is what we're facing, we're not through this yet. But we cannot have restaurants open and say, you're back to work. Everybody leave unemployment. You know, set up your child care. Figure it all out. Then two weeks later, the infection rate goes up. It's like, yeah. I'm sorry, we're shutting you down again. We think that is more disruptive, which is why we're taking the cautious approach, but still understanding that this is causing a lot of harm and pain to our beloved city and our beloved state. I mean, this yeah. is painful for all of us to witness this as well. Kathy, in the meantime, New Jersey uh, facing a lot of the same issues, and Governor Phil Murphy came out yesterday and proposed taxing high-frequency trades uh, of stocks in that state. Is New York considering something similar? The governor is not talking about increasing taxes at this time and, and fees. He's not. That is not where we're going. We are trying very hard to understand uh, or have Washington understand we need their assistance now, and then we'll be able to manage it going forward. So that's not what the governor is speaking about at this time. And we want to make sure that we don't drive people from the state. We want to make sure that they're, you know, that we do, you know, we, we, with respect to taxes overall, and uh, and with respect to fees, that's not something I'm aware of. He's looking at. Now, Bloomberg with an article out on that right now, Lieutenant Governor. How are you not going to drive people from the state? You're not getting a lot of help uh, with the Trump tax law on that. New Jersey's getting absolutely pounded. How do you avoid the angst of New Jersey? Well. I will say this as bold and audacious as any New Yorker would say, there's only one New York. And the tri-state region is still critically important to our economy. Smart people still want to be there. People still want to uh, come to the city. And yes, we're having some tough times now, but this could have an effect on real estate prices. It could actually make it more affordable in some respects. There's a lot of young people who are smart and they're Mm -hmm. creative and they're uh, understand technology, that we're the number two tech region in the entire country. We surpassed Boston a couple of years ago, and we're not giving up that mantle. We're still the place people want to congregate. They can't do it the way we used to, but this could right. be an opportunity for people to now be able to afford to live in the New York City area and still be uh, there. That's not going to change. Yeah. New York is still going okay. to be New York. Lieutenant Governor, Jets, Bills, September 13th. Who's going to win? <laughs> The important stuff, Tom. <laughs> oh, oh, Tom, you cannot ask me. You can ask me any question you want. Do not ask me. I am a Bills fan. I'm a Bills fan. You know oh, you're a Bills fan. I am shocked to hear that. <laughs> yeah, Kathy yeah, Hochul, thank you so much. Better. She is the Lieutenant Governor right. of the Empire State. Right now in China, Esther Prasad joins us with Brookings and with Cornell. And he is definitive at putting rigorous international economics into our politics of China. Professor Prasad, thank you so much for joining us. I want to go back six years to your Dollar Trap. What a wonderful book, The Dollar Trap. How has the Dollar Trap changed with Chairman Powell and the new idea of a persistent, weaker dollar? The interesting thing, Tom, is that um, the um, strength of the dollar certainly suggests that the dollar might be losing some ground in international finance. But on the other hand, what Chairman Powell did in the height of the crisis, which was allowing um, countries around the world to have credit lines where they could use their holdings of U.S. treasuries 
as collateral to get uh, dollar funding from the U.S., I think, has, if anything, strengthened the dollar's position as a reserve currency. Um, certainly, the dollar might lose some ground as a payments currency, as the renminbi and other currencies eventually uh, catch up. But as a reserve currency, my view is the dollar's position is, is, if anything, stronger than ever. To steal from Dr. Alarian, what are the unknown unknowns into September, into the end of the year, given this new regime of higher yield, negative real yields, and a weaker dollar? What's the unknown unknown for Eswar Prasad? So I think the configuration of the three uh, major currencies is, of course, a critical issue. What sort of um, uh, economic rebound, um, if anything, we see in the other major economies, especially Japan and the Eurozone, is going to matter a great deal, and what sort of policy actions we see from the other three, other two G3 central banks, uh, the Bank of Japan and the uh, European Central Bank, will matter a great deal. And the configuration of the G3 currencies ultimately ends up having a very big effect on virtually every other country in the world. Now, China, of course, is an interesting wild card in here because China's economy is doing quite well. The recovery has been much stronger. Um, virtually every indicator, short-term or um, long-term high-frequency, um, low-frequency, all suggests that the Chinese economy is well back on track. But now the Chinese economy is moving to this dual circulation approach, which uh, President Xi Jinping has talked about, where they're going to rely less on external demand, a lot more on domestically generated uh, um, demand. Uh, but at the same time, China is trying to increase its market share in terms of technology, trying to increase technology self-sufficiency. So the one thing that I think uh, is emanating from China is the possibility that this um, uh, um, um, difficulty between the U.S. and China, the tensions uh, um, are going to persist. And I think we're seeing many more countries also beginning to uh, push China a little bit against the wall and push back against its expansionist tendencies. Do you think that this makes China more powerful or less powerful, given that it continues to show strength in this recovery, even at a time of dissonance over trade internationally? Now, China could have used this moment much more astutely in order to uh, pull countries on its side. But I think there has been a lot of pushback, first of all, about the uh, COVID narrative and what China's role in that was. And in addition, there's been pushback on a variety of Chinese uh, um, uh, tools, including its uh, um, debt that is issued to a lot of countries. Now, China has tried to play the adult in the room. Um, they have tried to argue that they are the big protectors of the global governance system as it stands, including the WTO and the multilateral trading system. China has stepped forward with um, at least some modest debt relief uh, in the context of poor economies, especially those in Africa. But I think the world is not quite buying it yet, and there is a concern that anything that you get from China does come with strings attached, either economic or political. So I don't think they've used this moment as well as they could have, given um, that their economy is doing well, given that the U.S. is leaving a bit of a void on the international stage. This is all pretty abstract. What's concrete is if you have a teenager or a tweenager, they are probably hooked to their TikTok accounts and they're doing different dances. I know Tom does them in the breaks, but I'm wondering from your perspective, China taking a harder line right now on the TikTok, the sale of TikTok, at least in the U.S., in order to keep it operating. Do you think that this actually gives China more leverage against the U.S.? What's the outcome? How do you read this in terms of China's trade policy? 
So I think of this as a hostile round of ping pong diplomacy. Um, both the U.S. and China um, are viewing this as the new battleground, that is tech. Um, the U.S. is concerned about um, um, what is practically an existential issue for the one area in which it has a significant advantage over China, which is in the high technology field. There are also national security considerations at play. China, on the other hand, wants to um, increase its market share in terms of the high technology industry, move towards technology self-sufficiency. So I think what we are seeing with TikTok, we're going to see with a lot of other technology companies where these two countries start using them uh, essentially as pawns in this much broader game uh, to try to dominate the technological field. So I think we will see escalating tensions and there is going to be no easy way out. Many companies are going to get caught up in this maelstrom. Professor Prasad, I'd love your perspective on this. I looked at TikTok for a fun-filled 18 minutes, and I noticed that no one was doing differential equations. Okay, great. <laughs> and what I want to know, Professor Prasad, is what's the national risk of TikTok? Now, that is an open question, Tom. Certainly, the Trump administration would like us to believe that um, uh, TikTok provides a way, essentially, to um, gather up our teenagers' minds. Uh, my daughter is a Are a you serious? Um, but, but also the notion is that they might find a way into um, Americans' uh, mobile phones and use that as a conduit to soak up a lot of information about um, perhaps not just teenagers, but their parents as well. Whether this is, in fact, a major security risk, I think, is far from obvious. But that is the concern that is at play here. Okay, I understand it's a concern, but you're the most connected guy we know on this. Is there any evidence that this could port over from what Lisa watches 15 hours a day oh, come on. Over, over to like a national security risk? There's one that Lisa loves. <laughs> we're watching this radio. She explained on <laughs> radio. We're watching TikTok on TV. You're really glad you're listening yeah, on radio. Seriously. Dr. Prasad, come on. <laughs> This is a national risk? That's a fair point, Tom. I think um, this is being used as a bogeyman for a much broader set of uh, uh, concerns about China and to use every available tool um, at America's disposal to push back against China. Like I said, the real issue here is not about TikTok, not about social media, but really about the technology uh, frontier. Um, and I think both countries are going to use every available tool to push back against the other. So I'm a lot less concerned about TikTok than perhaps about communications equipment, uh, which could come with security um, holes. But um, the U.S. is not holding back. And clearly, this administration wants to send the message that it's going to get tough on China on every available front. And TikTok is just an easy target right now. Just to set the record straight, I'm not watching Silly Roosters, Tom. I'm still watching Renegade to try to get that dance right because my son told me I did it wrong the first mm -hmm. time. I will tell you this, Dr. Prasad, you said something incredibly important, the idea that there will be many other companies that will be sort of used as pawns in this larger battle between the U.S. and China for tech supremacy. What companies do you expect could potentially get brought into this in the near future? So there are a lot of communications companies, but in addition, financial services companies such as um, um, Alibaba and uh, um, WeChat. You know, WeChat Pay and Tencent Pay are dominant in China right now. They are beginning to uh, make inroads in other countries. Um, financial services, in addition to technology, is another area where I think we're going to see a significant uh, um, uh, set of tensions between the two countries. Because here again, there is an existential issue. What the U.S. does very well is provide high technology um, goods. 
um, it innovates, and it provides very good financial services. These are exactly the areas where China is hoping to <clears throat> upgrade its economy and gain market share around the world. So we're going to see a broad scale of conflict, no matter what All happens right. in the U.S. Dr. Prasad, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it today. Ezra Prasad of Cornell and Brookings as well. Gabriela Santos joins us, global market strategist at J.P. Morgan. Gabriela, I want you to do your Foreign Exchange Act right now, like you're writing for Feroli and Kasman on a Friday afternoon. EM, <clears throat> EM really has disassociated itself from the major currencies. What does it signal that we've seen persistent EM weakness uh, over the la in, in FX over the last number of weeks? So, Tom, you're absolutely right to point out that the dollar weakness that we've been seeing uh, for the past few months has been much more concentrated versus the G10 and specifically versus the euro. And I think that's uh, largely a reflection about uh, more optimism about growth in Europe, the EU recovery fund really lowering the risk premium for the euro and less worries about a fiscal cliff in Europe versus the U.S. In emerging markets, as you point out, we do still have pockets uh, of concern uh, in terms of economics and fiscal situations, and namely in the countries that have been having a much harder time with COVID, like Latin America mm -hmm. and EMEA. So those, those currencies well, are still reflecting a concern there. On a simulcast, you can rip up the script. Gabriela, you are truly expert at this. You have lived it. Identify for us the solution for Latin America in this pandemic, the distribution of the 45% or whatever of the deaths is just frightening. How does Latin America solve this conundrum? It's been absolutely heartbreaking to see that LATAM has really been one of the major epicenters of um, new cases and of fatalities as well. Part of it is not a surprise in countries like Brazil and Mexico that had less of a national strategy, but part of it is a surprise in certain LATAM countries that reacted very quickly with very strict lockdowns. Peru did, Colombia, Argentina. And I think, unfortunately, that's a reflection of some of the issues Latin America has, like economic informality, uh, like uh, less hospital beds uh, per people. So unfortunately, it's not an easy solution for Latin America. It hasn't been able to pursue that European model with great success. Um, so I think the solution is to continue providing as much fiscal support as is possible while being able to prioritize the health issue at the same time. Unfortunately, LATAM does have more uh, of uh, less tight fiscal space, unfortunately. Uh, but I think it's about trying to have that balance between providing support and, and continuing to focus on the health issue. It's, it's not an easy solution, though. And not an easy solution for the U.S. either, even though they do have the benefit of being the major economy in the world. Very much a dissonance right now between an unemployment rate above 10 percent, possibly yeah. going to stay there through the end of next year without more fiscal support, and a stock market that keeps hitting new highs. Do you see this as a disconnect, or do you see this as a logical extension of the big tech leading the way? I think there's honestly much more rationality happening in the equity market when we look beneath the surface. One interesting statistic is the, the, the sectors that are at the epicenter of COVID-19 are very services impacted sectors like travel, leisure, hospitality, retail. They are huge employers. They make up 20 percent 
of employment. So that's why we have such a high unemployment rate, but they only make up 6% of earnings per share growth for the S&P 500. So it makes sense that you have that disconnect between economic pain versus actual improvements in earnings expectations over the past few months. Yeah. And another way to see that is just to see, to your point, that the sectors that are leading are the ones that are actually seeing positive earnings growth, whereas the sectors that are lagging are those cyclically uh, exposed sectors. And 57% and of them are still down here to date. Yeah, and there is rationality. Sure. Zoom to the moon, right? After reporting earnings yesterday, showing incredible strength and then better than expected forecasts, it continues to rally. But then Tesla, and Tom rightly so, has been harping on this, this idea that their shares have gained 1,000% in the past 12 months. Now they're going to sell more shares. They're going to do it in a sort of different way geared toward private uh, sales that kind of are reminiscent of what Hertz did. Doesn't that feel a little frothy to you? Don't the valuations feel a little heady at this point, given the economy? I would say two interesting things about uh, the story you're pointing out. The first is just that we've actually been seeing a tremendous amount of equity issuance, not just by Tesla uh, right now, but also over the past few months. We've also been seeing a tremendous amount of credit issuance, and that's been all incredibly well absorbed. I think that's a huge success uh, for the Fed, for example, that they were open, uh, they were able to open up capital markets once again. So to me, that's a sign that things are functioning properly. Um, I also think it's a sign that actually we still have a lot of money on the sidelines, over a trillion dollars in money market funds, uh, more than we had pre-pandemic. So there's still a lot of money that needs to be put to work. And that's why well, we've been able to absorb this issue in so well. Uh, uh, Gabriella, on an absolute and on a relative basis, what's a sweat of institutions? I mean, it's September 1. Everybody's got to dress up for Q3 quarter end. And then they've got to dash to the end of the year to justify their existence. What's the sweat to buy the high flyers? So I think there there is not a concern about a bubble in the tech stocks or the or most high flyers because they are justified by strong revenue growth, strong cash flow. But I think there is a, a concern about right-sizing positions after they have increased so much. So maybe you still like certain of these names, but your positioning in them has just gotten way too high. So you want to bring that down a bit, maybe rebalance with certain companies, certain sectors that haven't shot to the moon quite as much. So it's more about right-sizing versus a concern about a bubble altogether. Gabrielle, I've got to ask about Brazil. I've got to ask about the opportunity in Latin America. There's a point where it's going to go, 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 and it just hasn't happened. When's it go? Yes, indeed, Tom. Uh, you know, for, for Latin America, especially the big uh, countries like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, there, there really has not been much growth uh, over the past decade. And we keep waiting for economic reform. Yeah. Brazil was a prime candidate over the past year. That has fizzled out a bit. So when I look at Latin America, I look at it less as a growth equity opportunity. I think that's much more in emerging Asia right now. We look to Latin America still much more on the fixed income side. Uh, you still have a country like Mexico offering one of the only positive real yields in the world. Uh, Gabriel Santos, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with J.P. Morgan uh, today. A nice reset there for September. Right now is a reason Gershon Distenfeld is never going to come back on the program. We're the Lions Bernstein, AB co-head of fixed income. Thrilled he could be with us. Gershon, at, at, at gunpoint years ago, you, me, and Paul had to study M&M. 
Medigliani and Miller theorem, which is the market is blind to whether you issue bond or stock. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not. But when a company chooses to do an equity offering like Tesla, or they choose to do a bond offering, explain to our audience how that works. Well, first, I'm curious why you think I'm never going to come back on the program. <laughs> I mean, we're doing M and M. What did I do? Uh, you know, we're doing. We're <laughs> what doing, did you do? We're doing theorem here. We're doing theory here of M and M. Oh, we're doing theory. <laughs> Yeah. Theory. Well, I, you know, I thought you were going to ask a different theory because, the, you know, the, the the Federal Reserve has been doing a lot of theory over the past uh, they have. week, and not a lot of not a lot of practice, which I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna get to. Um, well, what what in particular you want to talk about in theory? Theory as to why you issue uh, why you issue equity? Debt? Like te- Elon Musk says, I'm going to do this unique five billion dollar deal rather than do another bond deal. Well, look. In theory, you issue equity, you, you know you issue equity when you think that it's it's favorable for you in in the long run, depending on the price of your equity versus the price of your debt. Um, you know, it, it's it is hard to imagine today, given where rates are uh, and how cheap debt financing is and how available uh, debt financing is, that. Uh, you wouldn't want to, uh, especially if you're highly rated, you wouldn't want to utilize the debt markets. And we've seen, you know, investment grade companies do that in abundance. Um, you know, I, I haven't studied the Tesla situation in detail. Sure, but I can't, I can't yes, comment yes. On, on that one in particular. Yeah. I'm not an equity investor. Right. But, you know, in general, I think you know, the debt markets have been very, very uh, available and cheap for most companies. <clears throat> and, and most companies should be doing it. You know, most companies should be, if you think about their long-term pension obligations, if uh, a highly rated company can issue long-term 30-year debt at <clears throat> 3% when their right. actual assumptions on their pension funds are 7 or 8%, that's something they should be doing all day long. As you, if you're a fixed income expert, as you are, what is the Powell impact of corporate issuance? What does the Jackson Hole speech mean? Is it every CFO saying, let's go, let's go, we got to do it now? Well, I don't know that it's it's right now more than the past few years. You know, every CFO has been looking at at low rates and tight spreads for many, many years now. And they've taken advantage of it, and they should continue to it. You know, is the party going to end at some point um, as they push inflation higher? We have to remember also that inflation is a kind of a double-edged sword for corporations. It really depends on your ability to push it through at the top line. You know, we also talk about inflation as if it's just this one measure. And the reality is that inflation is incredibly uneven. Um, just looking at goods inflation versus service inflation, right? Goods inflation in many respects has been coming down for two decades, right? The, the computing right. power that we all have in, the, in our, our smartphone is greater than the, the most powerful computer was 15 or 20 years ago, as opposed to, to many forms of service inflation, which have been going up, you know, high single digits for a long time. So there isn't just one measure of inflation. So some companies can push through that, inf- can push, you know, prices higher by quite a bit. And many, especially given the pandemic, are struggling to even keep prices flat. So, Gershon, a lot of uh, economists have been telling me that what the Chairman Powell did last week at the Jackson Hole speech was historic. My response is, okay, taking inflation above 2% for a certain period of time is different policy. 
But in reality, we haven't seen 2% inflation in a decade. I'm just wondering, in all practicality, what do you think it really means for markets? So it was historic in that it is, it is a, a stated departure from what the Fed has done in the past. But as I said at the outset, it's just theory. There, is, there was no practice. There was no indication of how that's going to be done. And Chairman Powell gave himself a tremendous amount of wiggle room. Um, it was non-committal at all. There was no mathematics at all about how they're going to calculate that inflation. Um, hedge the language around what it means to overshoot. He said it would likely be appropriate um, and that the overshoot would only be moderate. There was no time horizons given. Um, there was an out saying they would reevaluate the framework every single five years. So, you know, I think the market is needs a lot more clarity on what all this means and, and I think is expecting it in the September meeting. Whether we get it, I don't know. Um, so, again, what this means for markets, you know, look, the, the curve steepened on this, which you would expect. Yep. It, it didn't steepen dramatically. You, got a, you continue to get a weaker dollar. Those are all things you would expect. Um, if they were serious about this, I think you would get a, a, a much weaker dollar. You get much more curve steepening. But I, to your point, we haven't seen 2% inflation in a long time. I think the market remains skeptical, and that's why, you know, you're not seeing anything dramatic. You should see a much, much, much steeper curve if they were serious about this. And if they had the ability to do it, here's the problem, right? The problem is they don't control everything. While there's certainly a, 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 a a shock on the supply side, they need fiscal policy to take care of the demand side. If we don't get fiscal help, demand's going to be depressed to the point where they're not going to be able to generate that inflation. So, so on they that don't front, control everything. So on that front, Gershon, are you discounting? Do you believe that uh, Congress will, in fact, step up uh, and provide another round of fiscal stimulus? You know, uh, now we get into the realm of politics. You know, who, who doesn't in an election year, you would think, which side doesn't want to give, give right. money out to Americans, yet they haven't been able to come to an agreement because of just the, the bitter partisanship that, uh, that we, uh, we find ourselves in. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I can't speculate on politics, but clearly, you know, if, if we don't get something, that's going right. to depress demand and that's going to it be hard to get inflation no matter what the Fed does. Just joining us, Gershon Distenfeld with us with AB, co-head of fixed income. Gershon, when, if we get a slowdown, if we get a lethargy in Q4, actually some kind of legitimate weakness, what does that do to bonds? Well, I think uh, higher quality bonds will rally. Um, that That's that's the lesson we, we've gotten from Europe. You know, we've been talking for a number of years now how the low level of rates means duration won't protect you as much when things go badly. But we learned that, you know, even bonds that trade at negative yields, they can go more negative. Yeah. Um, so I would expect that, you know, government, you know, treasuries will rally if we, if we get weakness. Um, you know, can they go negative like they went in Europe? That's a longer discussion. Maybe, maybe not, but they will rally. Um, and, you know, lower quality bonds will, will likely sell off. That's what usually happens. You know, the market seems to be discounting all forms of risk right now, whether it's the risk of resurgence of the virus, the risk of volatility around the election. But clearly, you know, one thing I think that is, is we should also take away from, from the Jackson Hole speech is that, you know, as the, 
the, the Fed reaction is, is going to become less dependent or even maybe not dependent at all on data. You know, we scrutinize all the data, and the Fed's basically told you that they just want to generate inflation, and their reaction function, they're not going to respond to the strength or the weakness yeah. of the data. Gershon, i got to leave it there. Gershon, Dustin Field, not enough time. Thank you so much with AB. Just really, really smart there on bonds and the view forward into Q, end of Q3 and into Q4 as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.